Well, we're beginning at the end today in Acts 28. I think that last line we sang is actually a perfect introduction as well, uh, before my introduction. Blake prayed it as well. Go to a world that is dying. Go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. You know, exactly one year ago tomorrow, we began our study of the book of Acts. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? We're going to conclude it today. A year ago, we said that movements have moments, that moments have men, and that men need guidance. That was a year ago. We said that's the pattern of the Holy Scripture in the book of Acts, and it's been true. Acts has shown us uh, movements of God's Spirit, God taking the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection hope from the disciples to the nations, from Jew to Gentile, from Jerusalem to now Rome. Acts has shown us men, faithful men. It has shown us from Peter and John to Philip, from Philip to an Ethiopian eunuch, from the Ethiopian eunuch and to Paul and Barnabas, and then not Paul and Barnabas, <laughs> and then Paul and Silas, and now Paul and Luke. There's been a a method to the madness of seeing these men, fallen men, but used by God greatly. Acts has shown us the guidance. We said we would see that in a year. It has shown us the guidance of God's spirit. God is the one working. He planted the seed of the church at Pentecost, and it has grown into a mighty oak of faith the entire known world over at this point. Christianity has conquered in this book not by sword, but by grace and the spirit of our God. God finishes what he starts. But today's message is not about an ending. Today's message is about the beginning at the end of this wonderful book. This book is written in its ending with an intentional beginning. An honest Christian reader, which I hope all of you are this morning, of the book of Acts, an honest Christian reader will have to grapple with this question. What will I do with what I've seen here? What will I do with it? It's written intentionally. Last year, my introduction said that we must be a people, as we study this book, quote, whose restless hearts will never stop aching for a new visitation of the Lord upon our land. We better be those people, is what we said as we set out to study this book. Is your heart aching for the lost, beloved? And Christ follower here today, I'm going to ask you this morning, right at the beginning here, here we are, right? The rising sun of 2023 is before you. Does your heart ache for those who are trapped in the lies of Satan? Can you name them? Do you pray for them? Do you seek opportunities to share with them? Do you fantasize about them coming to know God? Are you eager to pray on behalf of those who don't know Jesus? Are you hungry to share with them? You'll see this morning that Luke hopes so as he writes it. Paul hopes so as we study it. And I dare say that in his love for me and you, 
Not that he needs anything. God does not need anything from us. But as a declaration of his promise that he's with us always to the end of the age in these efforts, I think it's also God's hope. I think it's God's hope. And here's the thing about God's hope. When God hopes in something, it will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. And so if you're here today and you can't answer those questions in introduction with a great yes, let the text today encourage you. Here's the outline, and I want you to see if you can pick out the simple theme in the outline this morning. Three simple points. Here's the outline. Go to the fickle and favored. Go with friends and fellowship. Go to the faithless and the faithful. Can you pick out the theme? (laughs) Go. Go, 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 go. Right? That's how this book ends. It's a cliffhanger on purpose, we're going to see. And it's because it was never intended to stay in the archives, (laughs) right? It was meant to be poured out and poured over and poured into as a example to us. So we're going to go this morning. We're going to go. Let's go first to the fickle and the favored. Now, our text, before we really jump into fickleness uh, in these uh, Malton, Maltese, yeah, the Maltese people and even the favored people there, Um, we need to understand our text again. I know it's the last sermon, but every text has some things, right? Well, this one has characters. It has a context. It has a created purpose. Quick background for you. Our main characters are clear. We know them. Paul, main character of the whole book of Acts, turns out. Greatest missionary, you know, here at the end at least. He's the greatest missionary after Christ, right? Last week was Merry Christmas, right? Jesus came in the incarnation, right? Well, why did he come? So people like Paul would say, follow me as I followed him. And Paul is an example here for us to study. We also have Luke. Note that this is a bunch of we passages. Luke wrote this book. We said that. We've been saying that. But think of him as we think of the end here. Okay, this book also has a context. This chapter here has a specific context. It's a geographic context we need to pick back up from. What are we doing right now, guys? We are sailing in the Mediterranean with Paul. We're leaving a small island, Malta, and we're heading uh, north. We're heading to Rome, Italy. And so we need to get our geographic bearings. This also has a context biographically. Okay, we're focusing, and we've been focusing since chapter 21 in the book of Acts on the end of Paul's life. I want you to think about that. 21 to 28, we've been focusing on Paul's life. As an example held out to us in the Christian world that would read this, um, and our attention is arrested at the end of this book by Paul. That's a context we can't give up as we study this together. One last thing about context here. Our context is cultiographic. That sounded cool, but it's not a word. It's made up. I thought it was a word this week. It's made up. That's not a word. But there is culture, right? Uh, So this is a geographic thing. It's a biographic thing. It's also cultural. Um, Here's what I mean by that. This narrative that we're reading right now is taking place in the midst of Roman culture a Roman empire that conquered a Greek people and a Greek culture. And it's got Greek stuff in it, right? And the gospel is shining in the midst of that culture. Now that gospel came uniquely to the people, the Jews. God promised he would do it that way. But Acts ends still holding on to that context and we dare not get away from it as we study this morning. We need to understand to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
Okay, and we'll get more into that. But those things should help you. That's our character. That's our context. Well, what's the creative purpose? And beloved, pay attention here because these three points today, I'm really going to be pulling them heavily from the created purpose because we're, this is our last sermon in Acts, meaning I, I'm going to be a lot heavier on what is this for you for, right? What's it for the reader? What's it for you? The purpose uh, that will guide our entire sermon this morning is silent, right? So, so Luke has written this, the Holy Spirit has inspired this to address the readers of the day and then to address every reader of every day after, including me and you. That's how God has worked in the scriptures, right? You got to think about that because a late 50s, early 60s audience and a 2022 audience are different. But yet God has said that there is a created purpose in this for you, his people, and so think of that as we jump into this. Why do I tell you that? Well, this is the last sermon, but also, did you note how this ended? We, we're, we've been in since 21 talking about Paul, but we have no clue what happens to him, do we? It's intentional, right? We get a one-sentence summary at the end in 31 about what he was doing, and, and the reader should think, I gotta do that. I gotta go. I gotta, look at 31. I gotta go, and I gotta proclaim the kingdom of God, and I gotta teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without any hindrance. That's what the reader must understand. This morning, I want all three of those points I told you to really influence us as we think about closing this and think of our purpose. God's so good, right? Here we are, January 1st, a year later, and we're preaching this sermon. We couldn't have planned it any better. I hope that's the case. Let's talk about going to the fickle and the favored, though, because that is in our text. Our text um, really starts with the fickleness. And, and if you don't know what fickle means, let me define it for you. Quote, here's what fickle means. It means changing frequently, especially as regards someone's loyalties, their interests, and their affections. If you're fickle, you can change very quickly with the circumstances. You're not rooted in what you believe, Okay. Isn't that exampled in today's text with the Maltese people? Look at it with me again. Verse one, Paul and everyone. That's the 276 persons that have crash landed their ship on the island of Malta. Now you don't have your map probably from previous sermons, but if you did, we're right below Sicily, okay? That's the, that's the soccer ball of the, of the high heel boot that's kicking uh, you know, the, the country of Italy, right? In Rome, in, in Italy. And Rome is a Northern city we're trying to get to. Well, Luke in verse two calls them bar, uh, bar, barbaros or barbaros. Um, that's the word that you probably know as barbarian, right? That's where we get the term barbarian. Well, it's unkind uh, of Luke, we would think, in our modern sense, uh, because when we hear barbarian, we think like stupid people. We think Vikings. We think like, you know, Aborigines with like a bone in their nose, right? Like, uh, but that's really not fair to this people. Um, and Luke doesn't mean it that way. Your Bible may even have a note that says, look, this simply means they're non-Greek speakers, okay? Now, it means they're non-Greek speakers at best, but it could mean that they're maybe just uncultured at worst, right? So they're just, they lack some development, but I want you to see that these barbarians, Luke also wants you to know, what do they do? They are hospitable. Now, hear me, they're fickle. And a lot of the people mean you're gonna go to and share the gospel where they're gonna be fickle. But I think something that we maybe need to be ready for is the surprise of the hospitality of pagans. Did you notice that? Luke says to you as you read this, an unusual kindness, 
verse 2, appeared in these people. Don't forget when you go to share the gospel and the love of Christ that you are not the only one as a Christian that understands kindness and hospitality. Paul had written in Romans 2 prior to coming to the Jews in Rome, and he said that it was God himself who put the common sense of his law, right? His law in the hearts of all men. Everyone possesses in the Imago Dei the image of God and the law of God is written on their hearts. I think this is a fruit of that. Paul and Luke seem to think that and we shouldn't be surprised by the kindness. Now, this wasn't in my notes, but I just think this is how God works. So cool. Last night, one of our brothers had somebody knock on his door, some neighbors of his, and he's not sure they're a Christian or not. And, and that's kind of beside the point. I don't want to out them as pagans because honestly, we don't even know if the Maltese people believe, all right? So know that. But how cool is it that last night, a brother in our church upstairs gets woken up because some people were knocking on his door and wanted to give him a gift. And they gave him a gift in the middle of the night. And for him and his wife, it was a very unusual kindness. I mean, he had to get out of bed to receive said gift, right? But he was ready for it, I think, to receive it. And Paul is ready to receive the kindness. And I I just think that it's neat to remember that even our Even pagan people, people that we want to reach, we need to be ready for what God would use them to do, right? Like something good they would do that that maybe we would be able to enter into that space and meet them as Paul will. Now, they may be kind, but verse three through six shows us how fickle they are, how fickle they are. You heard the story, but did you you realize what happened? Paul gets bit by a snake, (laughs) y'all, right? (laughs) A viperous snake, that's a poisonous snake. And the thing's just hanging there on his hand when it happens. It's almost, it's almost as if he doesn't know, or at least he hasn't noticed. Everybody else, you can hear the gasp, right? It's like, oh, whoa, like that's a poisonous viper. It's bit, Paul, clearly hanging by its fangs. Now they conclude when they see that, whoa, this guy's a murderer, right? Now, where did Paul just come from, brothers and sisters? The ocean, a shipwreck, right? Their immediate thought is, Poseidon didn't get him. (laughs) Now, we don't have Poseidon in the text. But the sea, at least, didn't kill him. But he's a murderer, and look, justice has gotten him. Do you see justice in your Bible? Look again at justice. For many of you, it'll have have a capitalization. It should. It's the Greek word diki, diki. And it's actually a proper noun of a goddess, a goddess that in Greek mythology was the daughter of Themis and Zeus. Zeus and Themis, Themis being the goddess of justice, was Zeus's second wife. He's immoral and horrible like that. And, uh, and listen, they had a daughter, Diki, and, and, and she was the goddess of justice, often pictured with scales. So these, these people have this encounter with Paul, and in their fickleness of what they have done with God's law on their heart, they show their false gods. They bring them right out there into the open, and they say, see, justice is caught up with you. The God... The goddess is judging you. Well, Paul shakes it off, right? It's like Monty Monty Python, right? He's but a flesh wound. He just like shakes the thing off, right? And and he moves on. And then what do they do? Well, they conclude, well, scratch that. He's a god, (laughs) right? Paul doesn't swell. They're waiting for that. He doesn't die. They're like, oh, okay, we got it wrong. And they switch 180 on us. And they go, okay, he must be a god. Now, you can't help if you know Luke and I think by now we know Luke, right? 
It seems to me like there's a bit of humor in Luke's presentation of this. You know, it's real quick that he gives us both. But I want you to see, interestingly, that we don't, we don't get to hear if Paul preached the gospel to them at this moment. We don't get to see that he planted a church among this island. Luke doesn't tell us that. We don't even know if any of these islanders got saved. Uh, the results are just left out. There's just actions and miracles and things that are happening. So what do we make of this, of going to fickle people? Here's some application. Paul's likely exhausted. He's probably worn out from the sea. I mean, he just had a shipwreck, right? And yet, what is Paul found doing? He's found as the leader. I mean, he had become the chaplain, essentially, of the ship, right? The guy in control. God had told him that everybody would make it. Everybody has, and everybody knows it. You would think now is the time for him to assume leadership, right? And step up and say, everybody, listen, where is he found? Humbly gathering sticks to throw on the fire to help people stay warm. There's a lesson about leadership in here, isn't there? Paul goes, and, he, and, and how, how awesome is it that in the humility of his willingness to serve, even alongside these, these, these men that he's laboring with on the boat and these Maltese people, that that's what God uses to, it turns out one of the sticks is not a stick, it's a snake, it hits the fire and now it's on him. And now Paul has an opportunity to witness to fickle people. I just want you to see a connection here. Sometimes it is your service and it is your servant heart and it is your willingness, as Jesus said, to go a mile extra with someone, right? To get in their shoes for a minute. Sometimes that's the best way to get to the heart of the gospel with fickle people. Paul does it. God uses it. Paul's interactions here, we need to understand the snake bite that doesn't cause him death. Uh, it's very much an apostolic thing. Luke, at the very end of this letter, uh, of, this, of this history, excuse me, is still showing us with these miracles, the apostolic age is happening. And so we need to understand that, you know, this is not a text to justify us going and trying to be silly with vipers or things like it. Instead, it's a sign pointing to what God is doing when he reaches people, right? He reaches deep into their superstition. One last application. If you think these are barbarians and this is a barbaric, barbaric kind of thing and maybe it doesn't apply to us, church, you'd be wrong. Listen, in, in this last year alone, as I sat and prepared this, I thought of people we witnessed to. This year alone, we have witnessed to people that they believed that their house was haunted by ghosts and demons. I've had conversations this year with people that do trust in horoscope predictions. I've had conversations this year about with, with lost people that play the lottery as if it is with saving faith. I've talked to people that have done certain things or not done certain things on certain holidays. We live in a very superstitious age still. And there are people just like these Maltese in Nacogdoches that you need to be ready to go and serve with a happy heart, even through your difficult exhaustion. And you need to be ready because God may use something weird that they think to get them to the gospel. Are we ready? I hope so. Now, that's the fickleness. Paul went to fickle people. He also went, I want you to see the favored people. You can't really control fickle people, but you can control this next group. Now, here's what I mean. I don't, I don't mean they're favored by God. What I mean is, is they're favorite people. They're a favorite. They're leaders, okay? Notice, what did Paul do? He went to the leaders among these islanders. And this is Paul's habit that Luke has showed us time and again. And he's doing it again now. Paul always did this. Do you remember? Remember the first missionary journey when they hopped right off of the coast of, uh, of, of Antioch and they hit that island? 
Where did they end up? Before the main tetrarch of that island. Okay, that's how we started and this is how we will end. Paul always seeks the counsel of the leader in charge. Now, there's a lot behind why he does it, but let's just look at the facts. Because he chose to try to get before the leader of this island, it seems as though the favor of God, as he went to the favorite person, this leader, the favor of God did show up. Because it turns out Publius has a father who has been fighting an infection for, for a long time probably. Dysentery, what the word Luke is using there, implies a constant recurring fever and infection. So he probably just had something that we would take antibiotics for today and it would go away permanently and they didn't have that then. So the Holy Spirit brings some antibiotics up in there through Paul, heals him, right? He's healed. And another apostolic affirmation of, of the gospel. But what does it do? It gives Paul the opportunity now to minister at large to everyone on the island. And so more sick people come, they're cured. And the point being, hey, God is able to reach a lot through the the, through the understanding that, the, that Paul went to these favored individuals, this, this leader. That's the text. How do we apply this before we move on? We need to ask ourselves, should we prioritize favored people ourselves? We want to share the gospel with fickle people. What about favored people? I think we can say yes, but here's how we have to do it. We have to do it biblically. Something like this starts in the heart it starts in the home first. Heart and home is where this begins. It does not start in the halls of the influential. A lot of Christian evangelicals today, they try to rush to the halls and the conversations of the influential people, and they mistake what God had intended maybe of how they should get there, right? They would skip fickle moments on the beach with vipers, and they would try to rush to the political notions of if I can empower myself on par, I'll have footing to share the gospel. It's not Paul's approach, right? Paul shows up in trust, submits to God, and then ends up often with an opportunity, and then he takes it. Now, let me show you this in the Old Testament. God exiled his people. If you've never heard that before, you're not a scholar, student, studier of the Old Testament, God exiled his people, Israel. Two major exiles happened, one under the Assyrians, one under the Babylonians, okay? Those captivities were horrible. I mean, they were absolutely done away with as a nation and basically forced to do evil things, many of them killed because of it, or many of them succumbing to it and, and committing idolatry. But God always saved a faithful remnant. And he speaks to that remnant in Jeremiah. And listen to this. In Jeremiah 29, which is a famous passage because of verse 11, backing up verses four through seven, this is how we go to favored people. Listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You got that? This is the Babylonian captivity. Verse five, here's what you should do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Six, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not in, uh, decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So that's Jeremiah 29, four through seven. 
Why do I bring that up at this point? Well, we're ending in Acts, and we don't really get to see what happens with Publius, and we don't even get to see what happens with Rome. But what we do get to understand as the old covenant prophet Jeremiah, who later will talk about the new covenant and how me and you now are functioning under the new covenant in Christ, we are exiles, brothers and sisters, on this earth waiting for the final redemption of our home in heaven. And we are to act in continuity in the same way God said they should act in Jeremiah. And so if we're going to look at Paul's example in this short time on the island of Malta, and we're going to understand Jeremiah and what Jesus said about being salt and light in the world, you're going to find an application of what it means to go to favored people. Here's what it is. As you live, witness. That seems simple, but I'm telling you, beloved, as you grow in a corporate ladder, as you increase in stature and influence, as you make friends with your coworkers, as you live in a city for a long time, there should be a direct one-to-one that all the ways that you prosper and you grow and things happen, you build your house, you buy your house, you, you, lo- you raise a family, you meet a spouse, you get a promotion, you do this, you are out in the public activity, there must be a correlation in your eagerness to point everything about you to Jesus. When you do that, God will open doors of opportunity. He's done it over and over again in the book of Acts. He wants to do it in our lives as well. We should seek the welfare of the place that we were at. Notice what Paul does. I mean, Paul is a bold, caring individual, right? He's asking to speak to the manager everywhere he goes, right? But it's not to complain. It's to share the hope of Jesus, Paul knew this. He said, as the chief goes, the people go. And so God, if you will allow me, I'll I'll share with the chief. And God allowed him over and over again. We discredit such simple faith living in a land. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should take heart. Some of us here fail at times to share with people we count as superiors in our lives. We are inferior to them, maybe because we're only acquainted. We have acquaintance. We don't have friendship and therefore, we, we equate that as being not an opportunity. That could be wrong. Sometimes we are uh, working alongside others that God clearly wants us to move forward with sharing the gospel with. But maybe for fear or for whatever other reasons, we shy away from leaning into that like Paul would on this island. Right? But, but we shouldn't. That's what, we should seek that and not keep the status quo. Of course, this takes wisdom. You can't just right now go to the mayor of Nacogdoches and say, mayor, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. I mean, I guess you could, but there's probably other ways. The point is, do you have in mind a gospel that can so infect an area right now that even the mayor would believe? They said of these men, who are these that have set the whole world upside down? That's what they said about us, beloved, about Christians. When we showed up in Rome with the gospel right now, History tells us that place got flipped upside down. You know why? This. Fickle people got to hear Jesus because Paul had a serious patience in his evangelism and favored people got to hear the gospel as well. You know why? Because Paul had an urgency. Do you. Do I. It starts with a love for the lost. I've told you this before in this sermon series around the six-month mark. Charles Spurgeon said this to his congregation. If sinners be damned, 
at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Listen to the Prince of Preachers this morning, beloved. Go to the fickled and go to the favored among you. Our next point will help. We don't go alone, okay? Notice how the text makes a very warm and beautiful term, short but sweet. Go with friends and fellowship. So we're going to the fickle and we're going to the favored. And as we finish the book of Acts, I think we need to see here, Luke preserves for us the idea of this. Go with friends and go with fellowship. Remember, created purpose, right? That's what we're trying to read here. Notice the community that surrounds Paul. After being honored greatly for three months by the people of Malta, you see there, the end is a verse 10. Another ship bound for Rome comes by, they board it, and 11 through 13 have us cruising with Paul, right, and the boys again along the Mediterranean. We're not going to get into all of that cool stuff, right? But uh, three months ago, right, there was a fiasco, and so it's just cool to know that, like, sometimes you can get on a boat with Paul and disaster doesn't strike, right? <laughs> That's kind of the point here, I think. But look at verse 13. Look what the Lord has in store in uh, Putioli. Brooke, you said it better than me. I have no clue how to say that word, all right? So, but we'll just say Putioli because um, I'm not Italian, right? But, but listen, look at verse 13 there and read it again with me. From there, we made a circuit arriving at Regium. And after one day, south wind sprang up. And verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Now, this verse may seem small, but I want you to realize it is not small. You must not discredit it if you want to live your life on mission like Paul. Okay, Paul, remember, is bound in chains for Rome. Paul has appeared, uh, excuse me, appealed to Caesar. And that means it could mean his death. Don't forget, okay, it could mean his death. And if the rabble-rousing Jews of Jerusalem have stirred up issues, what he's heading to could be really bad, right? Yet he's going. He must go. He's bound to go, right? Which is our theme. He must go and tell. He must do it. God has said to Caesar himself. So here's Paul on his way. He is worried possibly about those things, to go and share the truth in Rome. But what does he get on the way? Seven days of kindness, Seven days of hospitality, seven days of worship, seven days with brothers and sisters in Christ in a church in Puteoli. Now, Luke presents this church to us as a bit of a surprise. Guys, Paul didn't start this one. Historically, this church does not find its roots in its presentation here by Luke, and even as we study it, in Paul being the one that planted it. So here's Paul, church planter extraordinaire, on his way thinking, I'm going to be the guy in Rome. And on the way, God says, look what I'm doing. Not just with you, but for you. I put these people here, Paul, before you ever got here so that they could minister to you when you needed it. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, beloved, isn't it? Oh, the comfort of looking unto Jesus with your whole life 
That's what Paul was doing. He was looking to Jesus. He was so sold out. He was on mission. He would give everything. And even to his own discouragement at times, he would give it. Now, why do I say that? Well, look, um, verse 15, uh, 16 here, like we're getting his, his travel, right? But I want you to see in 15 and uh, especially something amazing here. You know, all roads lead to Rome. And Paul, when he arrives at Putoli, that's about 170 miles that he needs to get. He's in modern day uh, Naples, if you know the coast of Italy at all. He's in Naples and he's moving up and he's going to be going to Rome, okay? Now, there's been a witness there, this church. He's got friends and fellowship, but what of Rome? Well, listen, all roads lead to Rome. You ever heard that before? Well, this road that runs there is the, Ap- the Appian Way or the Appian Way. And uh, you notice that that is even in our text here. But verse 15 tells us that Paul, when he is leaving, I want you to envision this. He's leaving this church after seven days. He's on his way. It's a bit of a, an ordeal because he's strapped to a Roman guard. And when they move on the road, people notice, right? And news has gone ahead and around. And so on his way, God brings these other brothers and sisters en route to Rome to encourage him. And we know that because look at verse 15. And the brothers there, we're talking about Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius, that's on the Appian Way, and three taverns. That's another town that's on that same route on the way to Rome, about 40 miles from Rome. They were coming to the traveling, you know, show of Paul coming into Rome. They're coming to meet him and say, take heart, brother. Take heart. The Lord's with you. And what does it do to Paul? Look at verse 15. This is amazing. On seeing them, Luke says, Paul thanked God and took courage. You know what that means? The brother didn't have courage before this moment. (laughs) He was discouraged. How good is God in Acts 28 to preserve for some of us that struggle so often in our mission because of discouragement to say, look what I have put on the route in the way of obedience for you, Paul. I've put my people. That's amazing. What What an absolute amazing grace of God for those who want to go. Here are our friends, here is fellowship, and they show up, man. Amazing. And then we see in 16, in the beginning of 17, that after three days with these warm Christ followers, Paul now is finally able to go. So he gets to Rome, and it takes three days of these visits and stuff before we really kick into gear, and Paul's going to do it. But brother, before we move on, sister, before we move on, do you get this? I mean, I really want to know if you get it before we leave. Do you get that Paul looked believers in the eye? And he, you know, believers who loved him and he loved them. We know about Rome when we study it that it was a ravaged city at this point. There are, there are rich people that are ruling it. Everyone else, a city of two million. That's huge for this day. Two million people populate this area of Rome right now, Okay. And many of them are poor, very poor. They got nothing kind of poor. They just are beggars and trying to get by kind of poor. And the Christians would have been just like that, throwing themselves into the diseased and the broken people, right? Here are these poor, poor Roman Christians, and yet they show up, and what do they offer Paul? The, most, the thing that money could never buy, true friendship, true communion, true like time together in the Lord. And, and it just comes through them by the power of the Holy Spirit straight into Paul. And it strengthens his weariness. 
An application for us is you cannot have a faithful witness alone. And if you think that, shame on you. It's just not accurate. I know that there are tons of missionary biographies that tout the Lone Ranger parachute idea dropping into a nation. But if you study any of those stories closely, Hudson Taylor, David Livingston, right? I could give you a lot of names of big missionaries, right? Hudson, or, uh, uh, Adoratum Judson. You, when you get into the weeds of those stories, you will see that when they were at their low point, God did something with his people. Even those that went all on their own to those places and, and saw death and horrible things right? You will see that there will come a point where you cannot do it on your own and God has purposely put with you people, his people. Now, if you're not committed to that, you're going to miss the importance of this second point and you won't be up for the last. I love how Tozer put it in his kind of magnum opus work called The Pursuit of God. He gives an illustrative kind of question. Listen to this, quote, has it ever occurred to you, Christian, that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They, the pianos, are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. He then goes on. He says this, so 100 worshipers, if they met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly ever be. Were they to become unified of conscience and by believing Jesus, turn their eyes away from God to strive together, they would have closer fellowship. Do you understand what Tozer's saying? Yes, you use one tuner to make all the hundred pianos work together. But then when you play those pianos and you play the same music, the gospel together, it roars with thunder, it's unified, and it's beautiful, right? If 100 believers in a church, or I dare say, if 13 adult believers in a church are all fine-tuned into one Jesus, and we prioritize him, but we always stay me and him, and we don't realize that in the comfort of that, you're singing the same gospel, I'm singing the same gospel. When you go to preach it elsewhere, I go with you in spirit. If we don't come together, we will find it very difficult. You see that? That's what Paul's getting here. That's what Luke is getting at here. Luke is challenging every church that picks this letter of history up to realize we're all singing the gospel, right? It's all the same tune, and we got to be on the same chorus together. That takes work. But after three days of hard work, of thinking with these believers in Rome, Paul is now ready to go again. So he's gone, right? Fickle and the favored. He's gone. Now we see to these, you know, to the fellowship, right? So the fellowship and what's here, this last point, go to the faithless and the faithful. Luke preserves for us in its ending some important things to this book, Jew-Gentile stuff, but ultimately he's trying to show us This truth, when you go and when you share, there's always two responses, always two. No matter how complicated it may get, there's always two. Whether you're witnessing to a Muslim or you're witnessing to a Mormon or you're witnessing to a new age atheist or you're witnessing to an agnostic or you're witnessing to a church Christian that is actually not born again, there's only two responses people have to the gospel. There's saving faith and there's faithlessness. And everyone will be judged on account of one of those two. And Paul, Luke, 
show us that. First, the faithless. Look at verses 17 through 22. They can really be summed up quickly because they let us get our bearings, and that's what Luke was trying to do here. Now, over and over again in the book of Acts, y'all remember, Paul goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now, why? One last review of this will help. Here's why. The Jews were God's chosen people that all the promises of God, which are the Holy Scripture, were given to directly, okay? This concept was really articulated really afresh for me in a book I'm reading on the Psalms right now. I want you to listen to it. Maybe this will help you. We've talked about this concept a lot, but here's a, here's a way to think about the Hebrews and what God did in Acts here, okay? Eugene Peterson writes, he writes about the Hebrews, the Jews, uh, as authors of the Psalms. Listen to what he says. This is pretty helpful. Quote, the Psalms, they come from a people who hear God speak to them and realize that it is the most important word they will ever hear spoken. These people, the Hebrews, made their mark in history, not by understanding themselves or studying what they found around them in the earth and the sky, but instead praying to the God who revealed himself to them in word. All around the Hebrews, their Greek and Assyrian and Babylonian and Egyptian neighbors, they gave themselves in intelligent passion to exploring the surfaces of the earth, plotting the stars, tracking the constellation. These pagan men around them gave themselves to mastering the uses of power, to pursuing questions of truth, and to figure out how numbers worked. But listen to this. The results of all this physical and mental activity of man are breathtakingly magnificent. But the Hebrews, you know what they did? They prayed. The Hebrews prayed. You see, their intelligence and their passion was always and only before God. They knew that God had invaded their history. Now, why do I read that to you? Because you should read the Bible, the Old Testament, as, as a believer. In our next sermon series, we're going to go to an Old Testament book because we believe that. But here's what I want to tell you what Eugene Peterson is getting at. The Jews were supposed to be a people who believe that God invades history. They were supposed to believe that. God was invading their history. Even when they were in exile, as Jeremiah wrote to them in Babylon, they knew this won't last, right? These evil contraptions and all this awesome technology of this massive power of the Assyrians or the Babylonians, it won't last because we believe by faith our God invades history. We don't busy ourselves about those things. We busy ourselves about presenting ourselves before God. We will be upright in his eyes when he comes. This is what they were supposed to believe. So why does Paul go to the Jew first? Because he believes that they're supposed to believe that. And he believes that God has not changed. God has remained unchanging. And so he will go to the faithful, so he hopes, even if they prove faithless. All around the Jews, think about it, in Rome right now, what is happening? Rome is the most magnificent thing that ever has hit the earth, y'all. I mean, they, they would really be floored by this thing, no doubt. But in, that, in this day, when you show up in Rome, you see everything. Look at the aqueducts that move water so people can drink water. Right? Look at the massive forums and the huge places. Look at the schools of Athenian thought and the thoughts that we've captured under the Greek. I mean, it is technologically magnificent. Paul shows up in that city, desirous to see Romans come to know Jesus, and he says, hey, gather every Jew that's present. Give me those people that know God invades history. 
And he starts there. So he went to them. And Paul continues, and we get in verse 23, and we get in an outline of what we are to do for the rest of our lives as, as we conclude Acts then uh, when they read it and today, what you should conclude. Look at verse 23 again. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him, the Jews, at his lodging in great numbers. Listen to this. From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Brother and sister, I just got permission to start with you now in the morning at 10 a.m. and preach all the way till tonight. Y'all up for it? I'm just kidding. But the idea here is this Paul who preaches till midnight till Eutychus falls out the window dead and then goes and raises him and preaches some more. Right? This Paul who spends three years after he gets off of his work going into the places where everybody's taking a nap. Paul's preaching from the Old and New Testament. Jesus has risen. Jesus is alive. This Paul shows us once again in verse 23 here. Here's what you do. You want to know how to go? You want to know what you do when you go? You doggedly expound to them. You bring out from the text. You show them over and over again until they get sick of hearing it. Jesus is God. Look at the prophets. They said it. Look at the law. It all pointed to him. This was Paul's plan. This is the plan Luke wants you to understand. This is your plan. What is God's will for your life, Christian? Verse 23. What is God's plan for Christ followers in local churches? Verse 23. What is your family going to do when it gathers around family worship? Verse 23. The whole Bible is about Jesus. You see, the Jews missed it. He went to them first because he said, look, you guys should know more than anyone else, God invades history. He invaded it in his own son incarnate, and you crucified him. You stubborn-hearted Jews who don't hear because your ears get where they barely hear. Your hearts, that should be aflame, they grow dull and cold. Your eyes, that should be bright with God's face shining upon them. They have been getting cloudy. You who know God invades history above all else, I'm coming to you saying that this Jesus is what he said he was. Look at verse 31, what we're supposed to do here in the end of all things. We're going to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what Paul did. The book ends. Beloved, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. And here's the results. They're right here in this, in this text. There's faithlessness and there's faithfulness. Okay? Verse 24 through 27 is, is really worth reading together again. Some were convinced by what he said. You see that? Praise the Lord, right? Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. There you have it. There you have it. If we're going to go, there's always two ways to live, y'all. There it is. And, verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Now, sadly, we just learned that some people, the Jews here, turned their back on the gospel of Jesus. Now, before you think God's done with the Jews, I don't have time. But you should go and study and try to make sense yourself of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because this, in the book of Acts, is really the last time we see in the Bible that there is an intentionality going after the Jews, missionally, recorded. This is it. 
<laughs> and, and I know there's people today that, that, that think a lot about God's people, the, the, the Jews. But I want you to study that on your own. But here's my point in bringing that up. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, was right in saying to the fathers, right, to their fathers through Isaiah, and then he gives that list of talking about unbelief. Brother and sister, when we go, there are going to be a lot of people that walk away. Hear me. You're going to get the backside of a lot of lost people that you share the gospel with this year. It's a fact. It's going to happen. And God is not any less good or true or beautiful. And the gospel is not any less valuable because they do it. You have to believe that. Some you will tell, will hear, and they will never understand. Some that you hope to help see will never actually perceive. Some that you hope their heart is softening will grow dull. There will be friends of yours that you labor with, I hope, this year. That with their ears, they fail to hear. And with their eyes, they fail to see. And you need to understand this. And God, God takes the credit for this, so read your Bible here. But God says, understand this, that if it were that their heart would turn, I would heal them. That's what you have to believe. God, you would do it. You left me here to see their backside, and it breaks me. It breaks my heart. I hate it, God. I'd give up my salvation if they would turn around and say with me that you're Lord. But I'll trust you. Why? Because if God wants them, he will heal them, right? That's what God is saying in Isaiah. That's to the faithless. Paul was clear. But look at verse 28. Because it's not only faithlessness, right? Therefore, let it be known to you, Paul says, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And he says what? They will listen. <laughs> Now, this is directed at the Jews, but this is a good place for us to close this morning in our, in our time in Acts. The Gentiles have listened to the preached word of Christ. I'm looking at some of them. You. Me. We pray, we pray our children. We pray some, some Gentiles we're hanging out with. They will listen. And God, by faith, has allowed the gospel to be preached. And when the gospel is preached, what happens? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so there will be those who will believe. Let me encourage you. Let me be encouraged with you today. They are still listening. The moment you think lost people don't have an ear anymore for the gospel, you have transgressed. If they're breathing air, there's a chance. Romans 1 is not a free-for-all for us to condemn people. Romans 1 is the greatest invitation to get someone to Romans 8, <laughs> where God has predestined and elected and called, and he is grabbing out of some of the muckiest, nastiest sin of people for himself. I'm talking Hosea, Gomer type stuff. Prostitutes and sinners. He wants to wash them and clean them and do it through your witness. It's as simple as that. Here we go. This is the intentional cliffhanger of the book of Acts. It ends. It ends with Paul's example, and it, it just screams at you, will you live your life like this? Will you live your life like this? Now, I could give you the history of what happened to Paul. I could. But we don't know if we stick to this text. And that was intentional. If you follow his example as he followed Christ, the promise is sure that you will make memories with this giant in the faith in the resurrection. 
Here's what's awesome. I could tell you what the history says. How about instead, let's do what the book wants us to do. Let's not know what happened to Paul, but let's know this, that if we follow after Jesus and we follow after the example laid in these first ones, these apostles who laid a foundation for us to build on, if we follow in that and we preach the gospel to the faithless and the faithful, you know what we'll do one day? We'll take this meal with Jesus at the head the light of heaven will be him. There will be no need for the sun. All things will be good. All, nothing will be evil. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lean over to Paul and I'm going to say, yo, did they really cut your head off in Rome? But until then, we don't know. But what we do know is we go. We go. We go and we tell. Can we do that? Let's praise God together for the book of Acts. And let's give all the glory to Christ when we sing the New Year's tune with the right words, okay? Let's pray. We give you all the glory, Christ. It really does belong to you. What a great scene it will be at that table one day. I don't know if Paul will look like nearly headless Nick or what, but you had holes in your hands and you had a hole in your side when the disciples beheld you glorified in your resurrection. And so if Paul bears the marks and the scars that pointed him and others who followed him to you, Jesus, we're looking forward to that day where we can sit next to him in the resurrection. Until then, God, the history can remain unknown to us. But what has been made very clear to us is this, we're to go. Lord, we are surrounded by a fickle people in this city and in our lives. We're surrounded by some who are favored in the world's eyes. Lord, we need faithfulness and fellowship. We need the saints to help us to not grow weary in doing the good of, of, of witnessing God. We need the power of the gospel in our lives. We need to believe that it is because of the gospel, something we're not ashamed of. And it is by the power of the gospel that they can be saved. Lord, help us to believe that it is from faith and by faith. Help us to hold it out faithfully, believing that those who hear will believe. And even when they don't and they walk away, God, help us to believe that you're still in control. While they breathe air, there is still a chance. Make us faithful where we lack it. Help us now to respond in praise and then make us quickened to be ready to receive your, your table, uh, this great sign of our salvation. Lord, help us to do that now by faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.